all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, November 1st, 2021. We're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero. I'm feeling excited to talk about American eels today. You're not eeling excited? Oh, I'm eeling excited. Eeling excited for American <laughs> eels. So we're talking about a super cool migratory and kind of mysterious species today, the American eel. And our guest is fellow U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service fish enthusiast, Holly Richards. So welcome, Holly. Hello. Glad to be here. I was trying to think of another eel pun when you guys were going off on the eeling excited. Um, But I just I love American eels. If you've got a better one, I will do it. I guess for for folks who haven't seen an eel before, would you be willing to describe what they look like if someone were to see them in the river, say, in the northeast U.S. or along the Atlantic coast? I think most of us have like an eel shape in our heads. They definitely fit that eel shape, right? They are true to their name. It's sort of that, that long cylindrical body, sort of the narrow tapered head. They do change color quite a bit from early in their lives through their adult phase to when it's time to go back and spawn. So for the time when they're in the just their river phase, they're called the yellow eel. So that's sort of brownish color with a with a bit of a yellow tinge. But then I they have these, I believe you guys, fish guys, tell me if I'm wrong. It, they're the pectoral fins on the kind of sides of the head. Um, yeah. They're super cute pectoral fins on the side. They are cute. So you have this long. They're very high up. Yeah. They're really high up. You know, you think of a, you think you know what a fish looks like. This is still a fish. They've got these little these little flippers like right by where you would think an ear would be because it's close to their face. So because it's got the long body, their pectoral fins really look kind of like goofy Dumbo ears. Um, so they're actually really adorable as well. If if you find a long cylindrical water snake looking creature with Dumbo ears to be adorable, which I do, <laughs> then the American eel is like fantastically cute. This is the first catagomous species we've featured. And what this means at a very basic level is they have the opposite migration direction compared to something like an anadromous salmon that's born in freshwater. They go to the ocean to feed and get big, and then they return to freshwater to spawn. American eels are born at sea. They make their way to freshwater to reach adulthood, and then they return to sea to spawn. And this is actually happening, I think, around this time of year. So, Holly, we know you're a big eel fan. What draws you to American eels? I mean, I I was trying to remember before this episode and when I first heard of the American eel, but I, the the story that I that I stumbled on that really kind of piqued my interest and made me be like, whoa, this is maybe the coolest fish ever, was the fact that we have still never observed them spawning. It's this incredibly widespread fish. It's all over the eastern seaboard. Um, it's it's in all these rivers, and we've never observed the spawning event. And so that was, I think, the first thing that kind of drew me to them is this this aspect of that kind of mystery. And that for a lot of human history, we didn't actually know for sure how they spawned because they had never seen, you know, pregnant eels because that process happens out in the ocean. So for a very very long time, we knew almost nothing about their reproductive history or. Uh, we'd never seen the baby eels, or we thought we'd never seen baby eels because their their life stages look so different at different times in their lives. So it took so long for us to kind of piece together their their whole life history. They're just they've got a lot of mystery about them, and so the stories of of scientists kind of piecing together that history and learning about them was really super cool to me. And since then, I mean, we've learned they spawn in the Sargasso Sea, 
So I don't know if you want to take a stab at describing where that is or what we know about that area. It's in the Atlantic. It's in the Southern Atlantic. And it's it's essentially one of the, the big Atlantic gyres. So where these ocean currents come together in this sort of massive swirls. And so if folks have ever heard of like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in the Pacific Ocean, that's caused by these gyres. In the Atlantic Ocean, you have these big gyres as well. And in the center, I think it's four ocean currents is where we get what's called the Sargasso Sea. And it's where there's, it's named after a, a type of, this is it a seaweed or sargassum weed that you can find floating on the surface there. And the cool thing for the eels is as they, when they hatch there, they sort of float on these currents, which are spinning clockwise. And so they float on one of those currents back up towards the rivers along the East Coast. And I was I was reading a little bit about it as well in the European eels. So we've got Anguilla rostrata, which is the eels we're talking about, American eels. And then we have Anguilla, Anguilla. So we mentioned tautonyms with suckers, but they're also spawning in the Sargasso Sea, which I thought was pretty cool that you've got kind of these two different species going there. And then, yeah, the currents are carrying them back to North America and over to Europe as well. It is pretty wild that you have these two massive eel populations. They're both sort of spawning in this in the same space out in the sea. You mentioned that we haven't seen these fish spawning in the wild before. I believe there's some people over in Europe who have done some weird simulations and gotten them to spawn in captivity, although I don't believe that those eggs have actually been able to make it to adulthood. But we've never seen these fish spawning in the wild. So how do we know that they're actually going to the Sargasso Sea? So this is kind of cool. And it it took a quite some time for us to sort of narrow it down. They literally would track step by step. So they were they would sail back and forth across the Atlantic and they were taking samples, looking for the eels to try to sort of pin down where they were. And it was just a matter of scooping up eels and tracking them as they got smaller and smaller to sort of pin down where they were floating away from. So sort of almost following in their footsteps to find them smaller and smaller over time until you sort of narrowed in on this really large area of the Atlantic of the Sargasso Sea and kind of that being the area where they are. Today, they've they've tried to do a lot of monitoring using like pit tags and telemetry studies, but it's it's still really hard when you're out in the open ocean to... Study fish. Yeah. That's more or less my understanding of how they did it too. I assume they're probably using like plankton trawls or something, catching these little baby eels, which the baby eels right after they hatch, they don't really look anything like you would expect eels to look like. They look like kind of transparent willow leaves is the best thing (laughs) that I can use to describe them. And they're called leptocephalus larvae. And eventually when they get closer into shore, they become the glass eels. They're sort of a transparent but eel-like looking thing. And then they'll get their color and eventually go upstream where they mature before eventually heading back out to sea to spawn. But what's interesting, I think that's pretty interesting, is these leptocephalus larvae. It's something that's pretty unique to eels and only one other group of fishes that is closely related to the eels. And that's your, your tarpon and ladyfishes. And so they also have these larvae that don't look anything like the adults, but you don't think about, you, you look at just the adults of tarpon and the adults of eels, and you wouldn't think that those two are particularly closely related evolutionarily, but in fact, they are kind of paired up there together. Is that leaf shape to help them kind of catch the currents, or do we know anything about why, why that is, why they look so different when they're little? That's what I've read, um, is that the, that shape really does kind of help them float along the currents. And so you think you've got this sort of like large gyre area in the Atlantic, the eels hatch, and then they take this sort of leaf shape 
And then they float along the currents from the Sargasso Sea slowly up. And actually, there's not only along the East Coast of North America, it's actually along the eastern shore of Central America down to Venezuela, all the way up to Greenland. So they have incredibly wide distribution across North America. And so you've got these massive currents just sort of floating and taking these little leaf-shaped eels along the currents as they float along. They're, they're not deciding where to go, right? <laughs> they're just floating along these currents, getting dropped into waterways up and down Venezuela to Greenland. And that's sort of determining the direction. Now, to me, what's wild, though, is that if we think, then we've got quite a lot of life history in between when they go from their little leaf shape floating on the current, they find their way into an estuary or a river system. They're then going to spend their lives primarily in that river system, growing, getting fat, anywhere from a couple of years up to like a couple of decades for the female eels. They'll spend in these river systems before they decide that it's time to come back and spawn. And so eventually, after a couple of years to a couple of decades spending in a river somewhere along the, the eastern seaboard, they then know it's time to go back to spawn. How do they find the Sargasso Sea again? They floated several life shapes away, several almost <laughs> metamorphoses away. They're completely different species in appearance and size and shape. Their body changes, uh, you know, their physiology changes multiple times in there. It's decades away, and they never actually swam, really. They were just floating on currents. So how are they finding their way back to that, that same general area? To me, is just really interesting and fascinating. And I don't think we fully understand that migratory process yet. Yeah, and it's a pretty arduous journey. I mean, it can be a, quite a distance for them to swim, and they're not eating during that journey. I was reading about some research that had been done by this German researcher, and he said that they're actually even losing their bone density because it's such a long <laughs> distance. They're actually consuming their bones, so you have like less volume. They're skinnier. Um, yeah. So yeah, pretty a pretty neat and extensive migration. I, I'm curious. You mentioned that you first became interested in the eels from being able to read stuff. Now, you do live in an area where there are a good number of eels. Have you ever been able to actually get out and see them in the wild? No, I have not. And it's driving me crazy. So I, when I learned about them, it was before I moved back to the East Coast. I was living out in Hawaii, I think, when I first read about the eels and sort of became a bit enamored of them. Um, so, And I hadn't seen any growing up. And so now that I'm back sort of mid-Atlantic area in the D.C. area, we actually, a lot of the rivers that are coming up uh, across the mid-Atlantic are, are big eel migration areas where we are working to sort of improve their ability to make it up the rivers right now. Because, you know, obviously if they're coming from the sea and going up the rivers and migrating to spend their lives up in the rivers, uh, things like dams, hydroelectric facilities sometimes can make it tough for them to make it up river to where they want to be. And so there's a, a lot of work right now to kind of help the eels make sure that they have safe passage through our rivers so that they can be a, a healthy part of the ecosystem. Because we haven't really talked about their role in the ecosystem, but they're actually really important for the ecosystems where they spend their lives. They're a host species for mussels. They are an important part of the prey base. They were an important food source for the indigenous folks who lived here. They were a huge food source up and down the East Coast for indigenous populations for you know, centuries. So really cool part of the ecosystems, and we want to make sure that they stay that way. So that brings up a lot of questions. So you mentioned there are host species for mussels. And for folks that don't know about the important role that fish play for mussels, can you elaborate on that one? 
Yeah, yeah. So mussels, you know, mussels are a really important part of our river ecosystems. They're ecosystem engineers. They clean our waters for us. So really, really important species that live in our rivers. And the cool thing about mussels are that the mussels, in order to complete their life cycle, at some point need to attach themselves to a host species, often the gills of a fish. And not just any fish, but specific mussels need a specific fish to attach to their gills. And that's a part of their reproductive cycle. So like they will uh, shoot out, <laughs> basically the muscle will, will, will shoot out um, their eggs and it will attach to the, the gills. And then it'll, the, I forget the name, the, the glochidia. glochidia. That's the one. I knew that's the <laughs> one. Will live on the gills as the fish swims around. And then eventually will, once it gets large enough, will fall off the gills back down to the river bottom. And that's will continue its life cycle, but it's got to spend that time on, on the gills. So eels are an important host species for several mussel species. So I know some of the mussels have very um, interesting ways of attracting a fish to come up to them before they shoot out their <laughs> glacidia at their yeah. gills. Um, yeah. are, I, I know also that eels spend a lot of time in the mud. So are they just kind of randomly going by these mussels or are, are there specific ways the mussels are getting the eels to like come near them so they can do this? So that's a good question. I don't know what specifically the mussels are doing to attract the eels because you're right. Like the mussels themselves are essentially just like fly fishers. They're anglers, really. They're, they're reeling the fish in. They know they need that fish to come by. They can't move around. So they need a fish to come by them so they can shoot their babies at the, at the fish gills. Um, and so different types of mussel species will essentially display like a lure in the water and make themselves, you know, the mussels got the the hard bivalve part, but then they can open up a little bit and their little mantle can display like, and often look like a fish or a crawdad or, or whatever they want to attract, whatever prey they're trying, <laughs> they're trying to attract as the fish. So I'm not sure what they do for eels. That's a really good question. So the other thing you mentioned that caught my eye is that fish passage is really important. Fish passage is one of my favorite topics. So can you talk a little bit more about some of the ways that fish passage, I guess, affects and is being improved? I know it's costly. It's, there's a lot of dams and culverts all across the landscape, but maybe just give us that scope and then talk about, I mean, I've seen the chopped up eel pictures of eels going through turbines headed downstream. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, for millions of years, the eels were able to just swim up and down rivers unimpeded, but we put dams on a lot of rivers along the East Coast for various things to support cities and for, you know, hydropower is a, a lot of them as well. And so that's obviously tough for the the fish species that are swimming up and down. So for fish, it is hard for the, or for the eels, it's hard for them to get past these dams. And so that impedes their ability to get up the rivers that they need to go to. A lot of our work from a fisheries conservation perspective is, is just sampling those rivers to get a better understanding of where the fish are at different times of the year, how the populations are doing. You guys are fish biologists, so you think about this stuff all the time. But I think for non-fish biologists, we sometimes forget, like it's it's kind of hard to know where fish are. You look at the water, you can't see where they are, unlike birds, unlike other mammals that are easily to visually track. How do you know what species are there and how many of them are there and what times of the year they're there and specifically what part of the river they like to be in. And, and so we sometimes will just, it's as simple as like trapping the eels and hauling them up river, hauling them past the dams and getting them to the habitat they need to get to. That gets them up into the rivers upstream, which is really important, but that doesn't necessarily help them coming downstream. 
because then when they migrate back to sea, they can get chopped up in the turbines for the different dams as well. And so for that, we're looking, there's different types of essentially fish passage or um, eel passage really through these dams. And so it's kind of a combination of better understanding what the, what the fish need where, and where they want to spend their time, literally trucking them to the places where they need to be and then, and then working to improve the passage of the dams to, to get them by. And in some places working with, with communities to either improve, upgrade, or remove dams where appropriate. We spend a lot of time out west where you have these really big hydropower dams, but oftentimes on the East Coast, you have thousands upon thousands of these really small dams, which when it comes to eels, that's as much of an impediment as something that's 700 feet high. So it takes a lot of work to not just get them over these few big dams, but having all these little barriers in their way. That's a really good point, because I think for a lot of folks, they have in their minds those big West Coast, West Western dams. And yeah, on the East Coast, they're a lot older. They're a lot smaller. They're a lot a lot of times easier to get the fish by. There's just a lot more of them. And a lot of times, especially with the older dams that were put in, you know, 100 years ago, um, they're not necessarily serving as much of a purpose anymore. And sometimes they're they're actually harming the community infrastructure. And so a lot of times our work is finding those barriers, those dams, whatever, that aren't helping the local community anymore and working with them to improve it in some way. So it's better for the community, it improves climate resiliency, and it's better for the species. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, the East Coast had such, and and still does to some degree, has such an amazing migratory fish community. I mean, not just the eels, but we're talking shad, we're talking river herring, Atlantic salmon, the sturgeon. So all these really cool fish that require that free passage along these coastal river systems, dams and culverts are a big, a big impediment to them. I was trying my best to catch some invasive blue catfish out there in the Potomac and along the sort of canal area. I was dumb. I am used to catching channel catfish. So I thought, oh yeah, I'll just use some chicken liver and that'll help me catch the blue cats too. Cause you know, I've heard people catch them on hot dogs and whatnot. I, I don't think that they really wanted that, but I kept getting little pecks on my chicken liver. And eventually I switched to, I had to go smaller and smaller cause these eels, I got a, a relatively kind of small mouth on them. And eventually I had a little tiny treble hook and I just set it. And then you see this long tubular thing start spiraling all in the water and I get it up. And yeah, I was so excited because I, you know, you hear about eels. I didn't even know that they were in there. And sure enough, I caught an eel in the Connecticut River. And it's it's interesting when you actually bring them up because they are very slippery and they will kind of like wrap themselves. I mean, it wrapped itself around my pole and it, they're hard to... They're a little bit hard to handle, but very cool to catch. Well, I think the, the traditional way to catch eel too is you would wait for the big migrations of them coming down and you would set up like fish traps essentially to trap, you know, these big masses of eels that were, were coming down the river and just do it all at once. We just set up kind of like a funnel, like a V and they... Yeah. Okay. And getting to what you're talking about, them being slimy, I've, I've heard of people who are attempting to, to eat these fish, which I hear they eat all right if you smoke them. But I've heard of people that help kind of deal with that slime. When they get them in, they'll kind of throw them into a cooler with a layer of salt in the bottom that'll help get that mucus off, which doesn't sound particularly pleasant if you're the eel, but then again, they're going to get eaten anyways. I like eating eel. So unagi, so on sushi, I think it's the Japanese eel is the same genus. But yeah, they're they're very, very tasty to eat. So I don't know if you guys like eel or if you've eaten. 
I, I have eaten it again in sushi and it is delicious. So Holly, if you were to give folks listening any kind of take home about American eels, um, what would you, what would you tell them? I think American eels are kind of this like perfect species for thinking about what's cool about nature and the world. Honestly, we have this species that for hundreds of years was misunderstood. was almost really mysterious. It's took us a long time to even sort of piece together their life history and get a sense of them. They're usually invisible. When they live in the rivers around us, they're out of sight underwater, sort of hiding in the rocks. We have these moments where we can see them. But for me, that it just speaks to just the incredible beauty of nature, this thing that was out of sight and out of our understanding for so long that is really just an incredible part of the ecosystem. And for us now, when I think about what it means to sort of protect these really cool species that we're learning about. So important to think about protecting their habitat. And that's what's really important for the, those eels is their ability to, to travel freely out from the ocean, up through the rivers. And so making sure that, you know, we're, we're doing what we can to make sure that they're able to complete their life cycle the way they have been for millions of years. These super cool species that we may never get to see, but that we know are there, just traveling thousands of miles on their own every year. Speaking about them being invisible too, you know, there's some places down in Florida, they got those really clear water springs and they got eels in them too. So you can snorkel and scuba dive Ooh. down there and, and see some what? eels that way. Yeah. Oh my God. I got to swim with the eels. I feel like that vacation <laughs> package is just going to fly off the shelves. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of stuff that aren't eels. I'm not going to guarantee eel sightings, but I've seen eels while scuba diving down there. Wow. Forget so. swim with the dolphins. Let me swim with the eels. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm in. I'll sign up for that. So we hope you guys get out there and enjoy all the fish and maybe go snorkeling in some clear water springs for eels. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Production management by Gabriella Montaguin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.